And so I want to welcome you all to our Come and Go Retreat. Can you hear me okay, Sherry? Not on this, but I can hear you. Huh. I can hear you. Okay. So maybe I won't use this then. Oh, I had it on mute. <laughs> I think it happened last night, too. How about now? How about now? Can you hear? Yeah, good. Okay. <laughs> so uh, welcome, everyone. Um, this is our first uh, Dharma talk of the Come and Go Retreat. And um, <clears throat> thank you all for coming. And I know already a number of you have been coming and going, and some of you might just be arriving now for the first time in this retreat that will go till Monday. And each day we're practicing from 9.30 in the morning till 9.30 in the evening. And some of you may be able to join the whole retreat, some just parts of it. So you're welcome to come and go, whatever serves you, that um, you can fit it in. And um, today I want to um, speak about inspiration of what brings us to practice. And often on the first day or second day of a retreat, we'll often begin with this inspiration of what brings us here. And this is actually very, um, in, in the Buddhist cosmology, this is a, an auspicious time of year because actually Monday, the 28th, is actually the full moon of May, which actually represents what's known as the thrice blessed day in Buddhist um, cosmology of the, the day of the full moon of when the Buddha was born and died and also attained enlightenment. And so it's very fitting that um, I find it very nice that uh, this retreat is culminating on that um, on that Monday, on the full moon day of May. And so if, actually if any of you um, want to on Sunday come and bring your Buddhas, we have this little ceremony that brings life, that charges up the Buddha. And, uh, and we'll be having a sitting here at 9.30 in the morning. Actually, it'll end the retreat 9.30 to 12.30, and we'll do a special ceremony to charge up the Buddhas, to bring life to the Buddhas. You're welcome just to bring it and to put a Buddha on your on the altar here, and then we'll have a, a potluck to, um, on Monday uh, to celebrate our community retreat. And so... Um, I think it's always um, important to share a little bit about the Buddha's uh, earlier life, and, um, and I think many of us can relate to this in our own lives because I think it's a very much a very human story. So the story of the Buddha is that he was born into a noble family as a prince. His name was Siddhartha, and um, he. Uh, upon his birth, uh, it was customary in those days to have some holy people come, or astrologers, and to um, just look at the signs of, of a young baby and, and give predictions for the future. This was very customary, like looking at the size of the ears, the legs, the hands, how the face is composed, the body, and so forth. And, and so... Four out of the five of them said that uh, he will become a great king like his dad. And one of them said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. And the king was very upset to hear this because he wanted his son to become a king 
like himself. And so uh, even though four of them said, don't worry, he's going to become a Buddha, looking at the signs of this young baby, this young child, this infant, uh, the king nevertheless was, was concerned that one of them said he was going to become a Buddha. And um, so he took measures to, um, grow, to help raise his son with immense luxury and pleasure, education and sports, all of the wonderful things of these days. And there was palaces for each of the seasons of the years and of the year and you know, lived a very sheltered and very um, luxurious life. And this was all the attempt of the king to not let him think about um, things that would make him want to leave the palace and to become a Buddha. So this all went on very well for 29 years. And in his 29th year, he uh, went out into the kingdom with his um, charioteersman. Now we'd probably call it his Uber driver, <laughs> or Lyft driver. And um, the Jana was his name. And they went out into the kingdom. And, and you know, he, I believe he may have been out in the kingdom before. But at this particular time, as if some veil lifted, and as he went out into the kingdom, he began to see a lot of the regular people of the kingdom, and, and he began to look around, and he began to see signs of older people, gray hair, aging, and and somehow this really stuck with him, that there's, there's, there's aging. And he asked Shana about this, and Shana said, yeah, they, these are people that are old, and if you you know, as you age, you, you will get old. And um, Siddhartha was, was fairly upset about this, that, huh, it's, it's you know, the, the effects of aging, the, the, he could see the effects of aging and realizing that, that this could happen to him and to, to everyone. And China, of course, reiterated saying, yeah, no one can escape from, from aging. So this was a little uh, imprint on Siddhartha's heart, and um, but went back to the palace and continued to enjoy the life of a young prince, and then went out for a second time with Jhana once again, and this time again the veils kind of lifted, and he began to really take a more serious look around what was going on, and and ran across someone that was very very ill, very sick, and you know he could tell right away, you know this person was, was coughing and, um, you know, really, really ill and um, warm to touch and sweaty and the person was chilled and was just lying and panting and so forth and, and uh, asked Chana, who is this? Well, this is a person that's sick and inevitably at times we, we all will get really, really sick. And China said that no one can escape from illness. And this, too, had a big imprint in Siddhartha's heart. No one can escape from illness. This made him very distraught, realizing these truths. He began to realize, perhaps even realizing that he'd been living in a dream world these 29 years and then beginning to wake up and beginning to see more clearly the realities of life, that there is indeed aging, there is indeed illness. 
The story goes he uh, went out another time out into the kingdom with Chana and there he came across a corpse, a dead body. Siddhartha put fingers on the body and felt the coldness of the body and of course the body was not breathing, it was discolored. It really stopped him in his tracks and Chana said yes this is death and that no one can escape from death. And so this really shook up Siddhartha and really began to think about life like it that it's going to end in this way of aging and illness and death and perhaps that there's no guarantee that they'll even be aging, that death can come at any moment at any time. I remember when I was four years old riding in the back seat of my parents' car, driving down Corey Hill Road to visit my Nana. My parents were driving, the father was driving, and mother was sitting next to him in the front seat, and um, I don't know how or why this happened, but all of a sudden I just got that I was going to die and that everyone was going to die and that it could happen at any moment. And I asked my mother and father about this just to confirm it, and my mother said, um, well, kind of answered me saying, well, don't worry, Bobby. It's called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, mm -hmm. Bobby. It won't happen for a long, 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 long time. And so she was kind of confirming that it would happen, but it would happen in a long, long time. But actually what I knew was that it could happen at any time, any moment. And so I knew that they weren't fully telling me the truth, but I didn't hold a lifelong resentment against them. They had, <laughs> their, they had their own relationship to death as well. And, um, and, you know, how do you talk with a four-year-old about dying? And, uh, but I knew what I knew, and that was that it could happen at any time. And unfortunately to say that um, by the time I was nine, I had lost my brother who I shared a room with. His name was Jonathan Buddy. And my best friend, who I played with every day after school. She went into a diabetic coma one night and died. And my grandfather who lived downstairs. And so I was who is visited with these illnesses and aging and death. And so too with Siddhartha Gautama, he he, he began to realize that it's none of this is going to last and it was very distraught. What is this life? Yes, I can have a life as a prince and all these pleasures, but also knowing that it's not going to last and what really is life? What really is the meaning of life? This was really up for him. Very lost, very confused. What is this life? Perhaps this is what brings us to practice just as it did to Siddhartha Gautama. For the next time he went out with Jhana, he came across an ascetic, a person that had been dedicating their life to awakening. And Siddhartha could tell right away, he said to Jhana, who is this person? They're walking by with some robes, and they were so ardent and so mindful, so heedful, and paying attention and lifting and moving the body. And really, there was a certain type of presence that this person had, and Siddhartha had never met a person like this before, and and felt that this person might know something, and so he asked China about this, and China said, "This is a person that's dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life." 
And when Siddhartha heard that, he knew immediately in his heart this was the only thing that made sense. There's a Pali word, the ancient language of the early Buddhists, called samvega, and that means that when you realize that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? And so he had that sense of samvega. What is this life and the urgency? And he knew that... Um, that he, he, he knew that he couldn't stay in the palace and be a prince, that he needed to, to, to follow in the same footsteps as that monk, that hermit, that wanderer, that ascetic, and, and try to understand what is this life. And so the story goes that, that he left the palace. His father begged him not to go, and he said, son, I can promise you everything. He's kind of, you know, so wealthy. I can give you anything. What do you want? And, and Sardatha said, okay, well, I, I want you to not get old and not to get sick and not to die. Can you do that? And his father couldn't, couldn't do that. And so he left the palace, shaved his head, gave away his princely clothes, and went off into the forest and began to study with different meditation teachers. But I'm always touched with this um, this fourth outing of him finding this monk or this ascetic, this person that's pointing that maybe there is another way. And maybe before I tell more about his journeys into the forest and the teachers that he practiced with, I want to first just say that that these signs of aging, illness, death, and the monk, the ascetic, these are known in the Buddhist tradition as the heavenly messengers, which is kind of an interesting title because for many of us here, uh, you know, what's so heavenly about aging, illness, and death, and, 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 and uh, an ascetic? But they're referred to as the heavenly messengers, and I really love that poetic expression but there's a teaching that these heavenly messengers are coming here to wake us up about life. There's an old Hindu proverb that says, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die, but not me. And so it's very powerful to really begin to penetrate the truth of that and how that's potentially can be a catalyst in, in bringing us on the path of awakening to begin to discover not only about death, but really about how to live our life fullest. And I want to say that I trust that each and every one of us here has been touched by these heavenly messengers. I don't think you could be sitting on the cushion or the chair if you haven't been touched by the realities, one or the other, or maybe all of them, of, of, of aging and illness and death. And of course, if you've been looking in the mirror as long as I have, you know, you'll see there's been some changes, right? Since you're a kid and look at yourself now, there's changes happening and there's, there's hairs growing where they shouldn't be growing or where I think they shouldn't be growing or hairs falling out that I think should be staying and the color is changing and, you know, um, you drive the car long enough, the tires begin to get worn. And so you begin to see some of that wornness 
of 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 living and um, and actually it's natural every seed you plant has its time of germination and its time of of it being what it does and then gradually it's it's moving into a termination but each of us have been touched by these messengers i don't think that we could be here without having been touched by the realities of illness, aging, death, as well as perhaps that hermit, that ascetic, that monk. Some of us may have been brought on with this fourth heavenly messenger, this monk, by maybe a friend of ours told us about meditation, or maybe we met a meditation teacher, maybe we read a book about meditation, maybe we met a person. And sometimes we can have a number of different heavenly messengers that are reminding us about the path. And I have always have one that I just hold so deeply in my heart, and his name was Bill Jackson. And after flunking out of college, and I was readmitted back on warning, and I ended up in this class on the wisdom of the East. I was drawn to the East, even from early childhood. There was something about the East that fascinated me. It's also my love of Chinese food, I think, too. <laughs> and... Um, but I'll never forget going into that first class, and and this was in college after flunking out and being readmitted back on warning, of coming into this classroom, and my professor, his name is Bill Jackson, is sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. And I never had a professor like this before. Usually they were pretty uptight, sat behind the desk, and this was someone in jeans sitting in a full lotus position on top of his desk. So he captured my attention right away. But even more than capturing what he looked like physically, it was how he said what he said. I had never met such an embodied, humble, intelligent, wise, and kind being. I realized after a while that I, I had a sense that he knew something. I had no idea what he knew, but I knew that I wanted to know what he knew because he knew something about life. And he pointed to us to read, um, the first reading that we studied was The Way of Life, the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and I just fell in love with the Tao Te Ching. Such simple, humble, and profound wisdom, and very um, based in nature. It's a very simple, very short book, only 81 different epigrams or poems or little readings about life. Yet each one spoke to me in very deep ways, and particularly there was one, number 47, that said, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. That's the paraphrase it. There's no need to look outside for everything you need to know is inside you. And I kept on reading this over and over again and contemplating on this, and I began to realize that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look inside here. And this really began my meditative journey nearly over 40 years ago at this point. So grateful to Latsu and the Tao Te Ching and this pointing inwards. And I have to say that I feel very fortunate that I, uh, some of you may know, I just returned from um, Taiwan, New Zealand, and most recently China. And while I was in China, when I ended uh, teaching a retreat, um, 
my wife and I, with our friends, they, they brought us to Xi'an, which is the ancient capital of China. And, um, and he, he's been, my friend Kevin Wong, he's been wanting to do this for some years now. He goes, I'm going to take you to where Latsu wrote the Tao Te Ching. And so I actually got a chance to go there. And I'll tell you, it was out in these incredible forests. And it was so serene there, and it was not built up in a fancy religious type of way. Um, and just to be in the area where Latsu wrote the Tao Te Ching, just, it was really one of the, the thrills of my life. I can still feel that space every time I reflect upon it. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And this began the meditative journey. So I think that fourth heavenly messenger for the Buddha was that recognition that he needed to begin to look within and began to practice with some of the contemporary meditation masters of the day. And he was an ardent and very good student and fairly quickly he mastered many of these meditative uh, absorptions that his teachers taught them, so much so that different teachers would say, all right, you've learned everything that I've learned and come and sit next to me and we can teach together. At that time, the most popular and prevalent types of meditation practices were practices of concentration, deep practices of absorption, of becoming at one with the object, senses of unification, serenity, tranquility, one-pointedness. Uh, so these were very wonderful practices for calming and steadying the mind and the heart. But he realized, even being able to do this, that while he was in those absorbed states, it was no doubt incredibly pleasurable and unifying, but it still didn't answer some of the deeper questions about what is this life. So the story goes, he had heard about the practices of self-mortification, and perhaps it's through the punishing of the body that the truth will be revealed. And so he practiced with five ascetics, practicing various types of self-mortification practices and really ending up and cultivating one very deeply, which is the restriction of food. Gradually lowering his food intake, they say, down to one grain of rice a day. As he became thinner and thinner and paler and paler, he began to realize that if he kept this practice going, he was going to die. It's said that when he touched his his stomach, he could almost feel his tailbone. And he began to realize the futility of this type of punishing of the body and realized that he needed to begin to take some nourishment or he would die. And so he left that band of the five ascetics and he began to get nourished. So it's said by a, a beautiful um, supporter named Sujata who began to nourish, support to nourish his body and, he, and um, after getting nourished once again he took a seat by a beautiful tree and he took a vow as he began to take his seat under the tree that he had been to so many different teachers, learned a lot of different practices and the understanding that perhaps there's no other teachers to go to see and no other practices to do, and that he took a resolve, I'm just going to stay here, and I'm going to see with my own direct experience. I'll stay here till my skin falls off my body, till my 
sinews fall off my bones. I'm going to just stay here. A very strong commitment, intention. So as he took his seat and began to become mindful of the breath, perhaps you could say his mind wandered off to a memory of when he was a younger child, when he was young. And he recalled this memory of sitting underneath another tree. And it was one of those beautiful, beautiful days. Here in Santa Cruz, we get so many of these types of beautiful days. And it was just this beautiful day. And he recalled that memory of feeling at one with the world, feeling a sense of connection and joy, quietness, interconnected, looking out into the pastures, the fields, the forests. So feeling that sense of, of joy and connected. Then he looked over to another field and there was some farmers in the distance you could see and a plow and oxen and they were going to be getting ready to um, break the soil to begin some farming and planting. And the story goes that perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, as the plow blade began to go into the earth, he almost just sensed, almost like even heard, imagined, sensed the worms crying out in pain as they were being cut open by the plow blade. And perhaps this is also connected to, you know, what brought him onto this path was these understandings about aging, illness, and death, and what is this life? And now this remembering when he was so much younger, the that sense of being so connected and yet heartbreaking, the sense of these worms crying out with their lives as they're being cut open by the plow blade. And he was just kind of, it was just this moment of like experiencing the connectedness of the world and the deep disconnectedness. Sense of the preciousness of life and the sense of its fragility. So he sat with that for a while, and then he began to become mindful of the breath in and the breath out. And there's a particular point in concentration meditation where you begin to become so absorbed upon the object of the breath, you become unified with it. And then you begin to develop deeper and deeper states of concentration, absorption, unification, one-pointedness. And so he began down that road a bit, developing his concentrated mind, but perhaps because of that memory and what it evoked of the fragility of life and of course also of these messengers of aging, illness and death, he did something a little bit different in his meditation practice. A little bit of a different orientation. Rather than becoming at one with it, he began to recognize its changing nature. The breath in and the breath out. This ebb and flow. And you'll know like in the reframe of the teachings of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is always that reframe of being aware of the transient, the impermanent nature of things. It's such a profound aspect within the teachings of the Dharma. And so he began to concentrate, applying the sense of concentration, but rather going into full absorption, using that concentrated awareness to begin to penetrate into impermanence. And then this began to arise gradually within in him some deep, deep realizations about life. I'm just going to touch upon it very briefly because we're going to actually unpack these more as the retreat 
unfolds. But the realization that sometimes these are known as the Four Noble Truths, but to me they're profound realizations into the nature of reality, of life. And the first is this sober, very deep understanding that there is indeed suffering or dissatisfactoriness in life. And it doesn't negate the joys. And sometimes we always, sometimes we'll call it like the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. But there was a real sense of a humbling and sobering acknowledgement that there is indeed suffering in life and to, to be born to age to get sick to die to be in situations that are uncomfortable and so forth that, that, that there's a truth to suffering and so there's this recognition of that and then the attention turned to what are the causes to the suffering and beginning to discover that the most primary and profound and deepest cause is unawareness. Not seeing clearly. My teacher, that's a mouthful. I love to say his full name to honor him. But he used to say that um, midnight is dark and the darker the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance, unawareness. And because of that unawareness, and unawareness leads to misconceptions, perhaps the belief that I can find happiness outside of me. And this gives rise to a sense of craving and delight, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. This is the second great realization, the third realization, that there's a way to begin to have cessation of that suffering through the cessation of craving, the cessation of ignorance. And the last, of course, is more like the prescription, this eightfold path, how to live our lives, a great realization, like how do we live our lives with integrity? Jill, I just love how she last night spoke about, you know, like these causal conditions when, when the mind gets, when you begin to live virtuously, the mind begins to get more settled. And when it gets settled, it gets a little bit more happy and a little bit more content. It gets a little more content, we begin to get more concentrated. It's like this a sequential event of the, the transcendental dependent origination that because of conditions of living with virtue, which is the first part of the Eightfold Path, that sets the conditions for concentration, the steadying of the mind, and this then supports the growing of wise understanding, wise intention, and so forth, wisdom. So we'll unpack these more as this retreat unfolds. And for now, um, we'll just pause for a moment and just breathe in and breathe out. And I'd like to invite you with the breath and with the body, with your heart, to reflect upon the heavenly messengers that have touched you. The realities of aging or illness or death or this teacher of awakening. Maybe it's even someone we never met before, but because how they live their life, like Mother Teresa or whoever, that they have, they inspired me to want to look inside. So taking some moments to reflect upon the heavenly messengers that have personally touched you. And just acknowledging whatever is present.
messengers of aging or illness or death. This path of awakening. So we're going to shift to a walking meditation and a couple of offerings. One is to, you're welcome to walk in the, in the outside breezeway or in the community room, which can serve as a walking hall to walk, or just going outside for a stroll. And sometimes we, Kara called it this morning, the urban Dharma walk. And actually, it's very interesting, and sometimes I've done this here, where I'll ask people to go out and do a heavenly messenger walk, because the messengers are all outside here, too. There's messengers of aging, be it seeing people, or even bushes, or leaves on trees that are changing. There's the messengers of aging here. There's the messengers of illness here. There's the messengers of death here. There's perhaps messengers of awakening. You walk downstairs, all of a sudden you see a sign, the Wisdom Center. Oh. I mean, who knows? I mean, so the, the heavenly messengers are in here, and they're out here. And so you're welcome in this walk to do a heavenly messenger walk and to reflecting upon these heavenly messengers within or around. We will ring the bell outside at um, 410. So please be earshot of the bell or keep a watch with you, and we will come back of course in silence at 4.15 for our next sit. Have a good heavenly messenger walk, reflecting on these messengers that brings us to the path of awakening. Thank you.